in the series, Ancient Cliff Notes, what we're doing is we're looking at these stories in the Old Testament, the most ancient stories that we have, and we're asking ourselves three questions. We're asking, what happened then? What does it mean for us now? Like, how can we apply this to our world today? And then how does it point to Jesus? What does this have to do with Jesus? We believe the whole Bible is about Jesus, and where does this fit in uh, with that? And so this morning, we're actually going to take a look at one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. It's one of the most famous books of the Bible, and there's a lot of really famous stories packed in it. So we're going to kind of have to kind of plow through a few of them today. But that's the story of Daniel in the book of Daniel. And it culminates, of course, uh, at this, in Daniel in the lion's den, that story that we're all, most of us are pretty familiar with. But there's a lot that led up to that that really could be like, uh, it'll almost feel like a few different mini sermons in one, kind of like four like parts to this that could be whole messages, uh, but we're just going to do it all in one today. Uh, and then in the end, we're going to really hone in on kind of what the cost of following Jesus can be. It can be. Um, and I'm actually going to begin today, even though we're going to be in Daniel the entire time, I'm actually going to begin by reading something to you from the book of Jeremiah. And again, it's a passage that most of you are probably familiar with, uh, but what it is is um, God gives Israel a very clear mandate of how they're supposed to spend the time that they're in exile in Babylon. And uh, as you're going to see, Daniel, the story of Daniel, because Daniel takes place during the exile, he really embodies this passage Uh, very, 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 very well. Uh, And so, again, you probably know the passage. It's Jeremiah 29, 4, and this is what it says, 4 through 11. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. So you're going to be here for more than one generation. So take wives. Take wives for your sons. Then after that, after you have children, take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters. That they may bear sons and daughters. It says multiply there and do not decrease. But here's the, here's the big part, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, Some prophets were giving some false prophecies. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And then this is where people in exile are probably going to get a little bit bummed out about this before they get the good news. Verse 10 says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, after you've been there for 70 years, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. We all love this. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much, God, that you give us a future and a hope, Lord, that you know the plans that you have for us, Father God, that they're good. God, that no matter what we might be walking through today, Lord, you have a plan for our lives. You want to do something, God. You are a God of reconciliation, of restoration, and you make all things new, Father God. And you can breathe life into even the most broken situations that we may find ourselves in today, God. Lord, we 
thank you for that. And God, we just ask right now that you would be here. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this room and that you'd be evident and present in this place. And Holy Spirit, everything that you would have me to say, God, let me say that and only that as we navigate this long and complicated, amazing book, God. That everything, that everything that you have me to say, let me say. Let everything else just fall to the ground before it even comes to my mind, before it even comes out of my mouth. We love you and we thank you. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Matt, congratulations. Matt and Siobhan, Siobhan's probably not here. Matt and Siobhan had a baby this week, guys. I just saw him. He's here. I'm like... Oh, he's here. Uh, yeah, he, he, he's gangster like, 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 like Don and I are. We had, Don had the baby uh, with Eloise, and she was there two days later. Uh, it was awesome. So good to see you, Matt. Congratulations. Uh, we've been having a lot of babies around here. It's been awesome. Sorry, I had to do that. I, I love that family. So back to Daniel. The book of Daniel, guys, it covers an enormous span of time during Israel's exile. Okay? Uh, it, 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 in the early chapters of Daniel, uh, Daniel's very young. Okay, he's, he's, he's a young man, but in the later chapters, which was where we're going to focus probably the bulk of our, of our sermon is the later chapters. Uh, he's, it's probably about 50 years later. He's probably upward to 80 or even maybe older than that years old. So we, we, we know uh, that the entire exile lasted for 70 years. We know that about 50 years into it, the hands changed from Babylon who, who brought them into exile and then Persia took them over. So it went about 70 years. And so in Daniel, it says he, he reigned or he, he had favor in, in the land from Nebuchadnezzar, who was, who was in charge at the time, all the way through Cyrus, who, is, who led the Persian Empire, uh, who led the Persians. So the book begins with Daniel being swept up into Israel, or into exile like the rest of Israel. So Israel is taken in to exile. Now, of course, the natural inclination of somebody who's in exile, who's just lost a great battle, and now you're a slave, essentially, you're in exile to another place, what would you do in that situation? Maybe you'd want to fight Babylon. That's what would, seems to be a pretty typical thing. Or at least, at the very least, you'd want to hide, right? You'd want to stay hidden. You'd stay away. You don't want to be friends with the people of Babylon. You don't want to seek the welfare of the people of Babylon because you, want what's, you don't want good for them because they hurt you very, very badly. They've killed some of the people that you love, and now they're holding you kind of hostage, right? So you think you bunker down together. You have your world that's kind of apart from the world that you're living in in Babylon. But God actually asks Israel to do something very, very different than that. He actually tells them, involve yourself in the city. Even though it's corrupt, even though they've done a lot of awful things, involve yourself. Be a part of it. Build homes, plant gardens, raise your kids there. Because you're going to be here for 70 years. And if the city thrives, and if the city goes well, then so will you. So before God promises Israel uh, and tells Israel, hey, I know the plans that I have for you, and these plans are good, uh, and and, and, and these plans are for the welfare, he uses this word welfare, of Israel, first he tells Israel, you have to seek the welfare of Babylon. The word welfare is actually the word shalom, which of course is translated most times as peace. Uh, there, but there's several words you could kind of translate therefore, but ultimately more than anything, what the word means is it means wholeness. It means to be complete, completeness. Uh, but it's used in both these places in, in Jeremiah 29 in verse 7, when it says you need to seek the shalom of Babylon. And then it's used again in verse uh, 11 when it says, I know the plans for you and therefore your shalom, therefore your peace, therefore your welfare. So it says, seek the city's wholeness. 
Okay, this is a big thought. Keep the cities, or seek the, the city's wholeness and believe that it can be better than it is right now. Work for it so that you can help make it better than it is right now. Work for it because the better that the city gets, the more your family is going to prosper and benefit from it. The more your children will have wholeness. The more your family and your community will have wholeness. But in order to get there, first, Babylon, whom you consider to be your enemy, has to be whole. They have to have shalom. So what it's saying is it's saying resist that temptation that is in us all to hide away, to separate, to be a part um, to separate and kind of create your own little utopian society right in the middle of this city. Instead, make sure that the city itself thrives. So the first temptation is that. The first temptation, if you're in exile, would be, I'm going to hide away. I'm going to do that thing. I'm, uh, I'm going to separate entirely, right? But there's another temptation that the exiles would also would have had. Because if you know, okay, the prophecy said 70 years. This is going to be our whole lives for a lot of these people. Right? Once you realize you're going to be there for a while, another temptation would be to actually conform into that culture and embrace what that culture embraces. Become who they are. Uh, we covered that a bit when we talked about Esther, right? Uh, Esther, it, God used it in amazing ways, but in order for Esther to gain the influence that she had, she had to do what they did. She had to give into that system and play that game to become the queen. That's what had to happen, right? Uh, it, it was kind of a bit of like a, well, the end justifies the means, so we're going to do this to position ourselves for this, which, again, God used that, and, but I think that that's very relevant to the way that a lot of us kind of handle some of the situations that are facing our world today. But the problem is, is one day you're going to have to account for all that, and even in this life, one day you're going to look at wherever you ended up and you say, how did we get here? What led us to this? But I want to use the story of Daniel and, every, and everything in this story, in this book, to encourage you that if you kind of feel like you're wavering between what's right and what's wrong, between standing with people but, not, but still not throwing out the word of God, if you're kind of wavering between justice and judgment, that there is a way that you can live your faith amongst a place that has none and actually have a shot at winning those people to Jesus. Daniel was uncompromising in his dedication to the Lord, but God used him to make an impact on society. And very, very early on, what happens is Daniel begins to gain influence. He gains influence there. He, he has a prophetic gift, okay? So he's able to interpret people's really weird dreams. Everybody has really weird, the, the kings all have these crazy dreams, and Daniel can interpret them. In fact, basically the whole second half of the book of Daniel is extremely prophetic. It's actually apocalyptic even. It's very similar to Revelation. And we're not going to get into that because in the series for the Cliff Notes, we're kind of doing the narrative, so we're going to focus on the first six chapters where we kind of go through the story of it, but there's a lot in there that we can look at another time. It's a 12-chapter book, though, and half of it is prophecy. Well, even more than that, but half of it is basically just prophecy. So Daniel's in exile, and he's growing in his influence, and he continues to get promoted. The king promotes him, right? He's one of the young men that's selected to be, um, he's selected by the king to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, uh, and he was being trained as, what's called, as what they called wise men. Also among the wise men was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're all gaining favor right away. But Daniel, when he's still very, very young, we learn something amazing about him. Okay? So he's, he's in Babylon, and he's, he, he's serving the Babylonian king, but even though he's serving the king and he's doing it from a place of exile, 
He still stands his ground on what he thinks is right or what he believes is right. They offer him the king's food. He says, I'm not going to take the king's food. I won't eat it. I won't defile myself with that. So he allows himself to be a part of the system, right? Allows himself to even be part of the culture and even part of the government, okay? He's trained as a wise man. He's a servant to the king. But yet there's certain things that from the beginning he would not compromise on. And this is what happens early on in the story. Then we're going to fast forward a few decades. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king, the king has a dream. And none of the wise men could figure out the dream. And the king's like super mad about this. He's like, nobody can do this. If the wise men can't figure out my dream, I'm going to kill all the wise men. You guys are useless. What's the point? So he sends out this decree, gather all the wise men and kill them. So then they go to get uh, Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all the other wise men. And Daniel's like, and they come to kill Daniel. And Daniel's like, wait, wait, just let me talk to the king. I can interpret his dream. That's not a big deal. So they take him to the king, and he does. He interprets the king's dream, and the king is thrilled, and he promotes Daniel because he can interpret the dream. So things are going pretty good for Daniel. He's going pretty good for his friends. Daniel becomes the ruler uh, over um, all the wise men, so he's in charge of all of them, and he requests that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, be given leadership or rulership over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So can put them over all the affairs. And they said, we'll do that. We'll give them that job. So it's going well. Then you fast forward a little bit and the king gets really weird. Like all the kings do throughout the whole Old Testament, basically. And he, he, wants, he builds this giant golden image. He's like, let's build a golden image. And basically what happens is everybody's commanded to worship this golden image. They said, when you hear the music playing, Okay? They say there's going to be a pipe and there's going to be a horn and there's going to be a bagpipe and a harp. And when you hear all this playing, everybody has to bow down and worship this golden image. Now, this is actually what gets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace. Because they're like, I'm not bowing down to your stupid little statue thing. It's, it's nothing. It's not a god. So, but you have to understand this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they served the king. They honored the king so long as they could do it without disrupting their conscience. But they had a line. They had something that they would not step over, a point in which they had to determine, I can only accept and support this government so long as it does not go against the commandments of God. It would be better to die in a fiery furnace than to live worshiping a God that's made by the hands of man. So they drew a line. They said, you know what, Cain? I don't think that we're going to die if we go in that furnace. I think our God's going to save us. But even if he doesn't, right, they counted the cost. They said, even if he doesn't, we would rather die in that furnace than worship your God. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he's really, really mad. He, he hasn't, obviously, all the kings seem to have anger problems, man. He's like, he's like, all right, just like you wanted to kill the wise, he's like, throw him in the fire, fiery furnace and turn it up seven times hotter than it normally is. Guys, it was so hot that the guards who were carrying these three to the furnace burned to death before they even got to the furnace. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the furnace and it does not touch them. So they're in the furnace and they're not getting burned and the king looks in and he's, he says something very, very bizarre. He says, wait a second, we sent three people in the furnace and I see four people. And he's freaking out. He's like, who's in there with them? He looks like one of the sons of God. That's what he says. What's going on? Well, this is what I think is going on. Obviously, there's a lot of different uh, 
views on this, so what's going on. But um, the reality is God could have protected these three without sending an angel or without sending Jesus. Some people say it's Jesus. I actually really like that view, and I'll share with you why. I don't know if that's for sure what happened or not. But, but, but he could have done that without sending an angel. He, he's done that before. He just, I mean, at least without a visual. Where the, why does the king have to see this, right? But this is what I think is going on. By doing that, right, by God sending somebody in there with them, God gave King Nebuchadnezzar an image of his power. Not just somebody who can withstand a fire, but God gave him a visual of his power and of his glory. See, Nebuchadnezzar had just created an image of a God with no power, okay? And now God, the God of all power, has now given him an image of the power of God. It's kind of like how Colossians uh, 1.15 says this. It says that Jesus Christ, it says the Son, same thing, the Son of God, it says the Son is the image of the invisible God. He was sent there. Jesus was sent to show us the power and even more importantly, the love of God. That's why Jesus came. Now to me, that's the most important part of this story. I love the times when God shows himself to lost people in a way that demonstrates to them how much he loves his children. And what you have here now is somebody who's bent on doing evil, somebody who would set out to do evil, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's, he's watching with his own eyes the way that God showed up right in the middle of it and spoiled his plans. And there's saving power in that. One thing that Daniel um, tells King Nebuchadnezzar before all this, when he's prophesying, it, it's, uh, it's Daniel 2.44, he says this. He says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. This is very, very significant. And I think that when uh, the king, he was looking into that furnace, and he, he's seen, as the Bible says in 327, it says that the fire had no power over these men. The fire had no power. It was evident to him that what Daniel prophesied is definitely going to come to pass. I can't stop this God. The kingdom of God, that the, the kingdom of the God that these men serve is indestructible. It cannot be destroyed. And that actually led Nebuchadnezzar to proclaim God as the most high God. See, what we find in the book of Daniel, in the chapters that follow, is rulers dying and giving the kingdom to somebody else. And then that ruler dying, giving the kingdom to somebody else. And this is why this is so important to know this before we move to the next part. Daniel and his friends all understood this from the moment they got into exile. But the empire will fall. The empire always, always falls. Paul says it like this in Acts. He says, gods made with human hands are not gods at all. There's no power in it. And you can, you can, create, a, you can create a god out of anything you want. You can worship anything you want. Maybe it's your career even. Maybe it's the government and how they support you or how they take care of you. And you can think, I put my hope and my trust and my faith in this thing, but it will collapse at some point. People do not last forever. Kingdoms do not last forever. Governments do not last forever. It always only lasts so long because it's created by man and everything here is fleeting. Even the most impactful governments throughout history led by the greatest leaders. The leaders all died. The governments at one point collapsed. 
And I, I have news for you, it's never going to change. They always will. They all do. So not long after this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, wa- he's walking on the roof of his palace, right? And what does he do? He, he gets on the roof of the palace and he's like, looks at the kingdom. He's like, look at this great kingdom that I've built. I'm so great, right? He, it's an idol. He's saying, hey, I built this kingdom. Look at it. And then this is what, all of a sudden, a voice from heaven comes down and says, that kingdom is it's gone. You don't have it anymore. It's, it's getting taken from you right now. And that was the last of it. And then uh, he, got, he got driven out. So that's Nebuchadnezzar. So then now let's fast forward to chapter 5. Uh, and the, the, Daniel is older now, a lot older. And Belshazzar is king. And he's having a huge party. It's an amazing feast that actually gets interrupted by a hand that writes on a wall. It's super weird. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. It's very, very significant. Uh, but first, I want you to understand and see what's actually going on here. Okay? History gives us details on this that the Bible doesn't about this time. See, just days before this party, Cyrus the Great, the Persians, uh, the, the Medo-Persian army had already defeated the Babylonian army. And they were coming toward the king and to Babylon. And it, with the army already fallen, that mean, already defeated, that means Babylon was surely about to fall. Essentially, this army was just outside the gates of Babylon. And they're gonna, about to be taken over, so they're feasting. And they're, they're feasting knowing that an army is getting close and it's just outside the city walls. And, but then you have to look at what he does and you have to understand the significance to this. This is what Belshazzar does. In verse two through five, we'll first read two. Belshazzar, so he's at a party when he tasted the wine. This is what he does. He commands that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought to him. And the king and his lords and his wives and their concubines, they might drink from them. So this is extremely significant. See, when Babylon captured uh, Israel, when they brought him into exile, uh, they destroyed the temple. But before they destroyed the temple, Nebuchadnezzar went into the temple and he gathered a bunch of treasures from the temple, essentially. He took some souvenirs, one of them being these cups. So he goes in, he takes these gold, these silver cups from the temple of the Lord. It was a day, uh, really in that day, the script was totally flipped, right? At that point, Babylon was on top of the world. They were taking over everything as opposed to now when they're about to be taken over. So it was was a very significant symbol um, for what had taken place, right? They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the image kind of at that point of God. That was what the temple was to people. This is where you go to see God. And, but at no other time in the 50 years that they had been since they had taken him into Babel, into, into exile, at no other time had, uh, do we know of that they brought out these cups. This is the only time we know about this happening. And some people actually believe this was like a move to kind of propagate um, confidence in the Babylonian people. Like, hey, we still got it. We look at these cups. We took over Israel. We, we're, 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 let's toast to our greatness because we're still great. But I actually view it differently. I think he was doing something a little bit different. What I think the king ultimately does, and I think it's pretty clear, but what he's doing here is he's saying, hey, let's remember the good old days. Let's remember the time when Babylon was the one doing the conquering. When Babylon was the one who took over people, and and our empire was the greatest empire in the whole entire world. Let's drink to that. Let's drink to the days when we had the power. It's kind of one of those 
moments when you, you die in the past because you didn't prepare for your future. Or you didn't, you didn't, the good old days, they cannot stop the thing that's coming. Which, that's a whole other message entirely, but I really felt like I just needed to say this to some, I don't know, somebody needs to hear this today. Your best days are truly ahead of you. They're ahead of you. They're not, they're not behind you. And just like how the prophecy in Jeremiah says, he says, I know the plans that I have for you, and they're good plans. Sometimes it may feel like you're in exile. Sometimes it may feel like you're Israel. And it, maybe that exile lasts a little bit longer than you want it to. But don't you dare live in the past thinking that it's going to make you feel better. Or thinking about the decisions that you made, thinking, well, if I'd only done this differently, or I'd only done that differently, then I wouldn't be here right now. Listen, you are where you are right now, and God wants to use you where you are right now. When you pull out the old wine glasses, and you toast to the way that things used to be, and that's the only thing that you can think to toast to, there's probably a pretty good chance that you're missing what God is doing in your life today, right now. There's a good chance that you're missing what God's doing in our world today, right now. And I'm telling you, the enemy, he wants to keep you in the past, whether it be a good moment or a bad moment. If he can keep you there, he can keep you locked in and there, you're going to miss what's ahead because you're never even, you're not going to prepare for anything. You'll miss it. But the Bible says that Jesus is making all things new, meaning the future is brighter Then today, it's brighter than yesterday. Paul says it like this, right? When Paul's in Rome and he's in prison and he's chained up and he's on death row, in Philippians 1, 6, he says, let he who began a good work in you, he will carry it out to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, most people, if if, if I find myself on death row, I'd probably be thinking like, how'd I get here? What'd I do here? You'd be looking backwards. What happened? But no, Paul's always looking ahead to the future. But notice what happens in in this when you get to verse 3. So they get out these glasses, and look what they do. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, and they drank from them. But they didn't just drink from them. Look, they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What they were doing was they were taking the cups that were taken out of the temple of the living God. The only one whose kingdom will ever truly last forever. And they were using it to toast to other gods. How do we know this is such a big deal? Because the very next line says, immediately, the moment this happened, the fingers of a human hand appeared on a wall. There's not an arm to this hand. There's not a body to this. This is just a hand with some fingers. And he writes on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And nobody knows what it says. Nobody can figure it out. But the king saw it as it, as it wrote. And the Bible says that the king, he lost all the color in his body. And he was terrified. His limbs locked up. He froze. His his knees knocked together, it says. There's a physical human hand writing on a wall. He shows up at a party and says, I'm going to write something. And suddenly we're back where we started. A message that nobody could interpret except Daniel. The king tells Daniel, interpret this and I will clothe you in purple. I will put a gold chain around your neck. I'll make you third in command of my entire kingdom. Just tell me what it says. 
And again, this is incredibly significant. There's just so much loaded in here. I know this is like, there's a lot we're going through here fast. But Daniel responds to this, this offer of all this great stuff, including leadership. He says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't want any of it. I don't want your reward. The only reason I can tell you anything is because of what God has done through me and how God is speaking through me in my life. I want to help, but I don't want to help with strings attached. You don't owe me anything. Daniel lived his life in exile in such a way that he did not want anybody to owe him anything. Simultaneously, it made it so he owed nothing to anyone. He had nothing to prove to this king or any of the kings. And he understood that all of the king's gifts ultimately were of no use to him anyway. They're of no use to the purpose that God had placed him in exile for. He was here, and, that, and those gifts would not affect that. So, so he didn't wrap himself up in what would bring him comfort, but instead, what would bring God glory. Which, that doesn't always go hand in hand. I, I think a lot of times in our lives, like we think that, oh, if the king's going to bless you, that's like a blessing from God. And sometimes maybe it is. But Daniel saw it differently. And I don't know exactly what Daniel saw it as, but... I. I know that he wanted to make it very, very clear that he's not here because of what the king could give him. It was no value to him. And he says this. this he's, he interprets it. He says, well, this is the writing that was inscribed on the wall. It says, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and they brought him to an end right now. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting Perez, you, uh, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that army on the other side of the wall, they're about to come tearing through, and the Babylonian Empire will end today. And that very night, the Bible says King Darius was killed, or I'm sorry, the, uh, King, Bel- uh, King Belshazzar was killed, and King, and King Darius, Darius the Mede was made king from the uh, Medo-Persian army, which that sets us up for the final act of the narrative. The empire has switched hands. Babylon, Babylon has, falled, has fallen, and so we've switched to a new king, but not really just a new king, really a whole new kingdom, right? Whole new leadership, whole new government. The Medo-Persian conquest of Babylon now has taken leadership of the exiles in Israel. And this is very, very significant, and I'll talk to you more about that at the very end. But this is how the new king, King Darius, structured things. So he put 120 governors over all the the kingdom. And uh, then he had three high officials over those governors. And Daniel was one of the three high officials. So right away, Daniel gains more influence with Darius. And King Darius, he really likes Daniel. And the Bible actually says that he was planning on putting Daniel over everything. So he's going to be like the highest of the high officials. It says that uh, he recognized the spirit of, of, of excellent spirit in Daniel. So, but then, of course, like always, jealousy kicks in. And the other two high officials uh, and some of the governors, they start to plot against Daniel. They say, how are we going to bring this guy down? We've got to bring him down. So they start digging up dirt, trying to find stuff. What do we have on Daniel? What can we dig up on this guy? How do we, make, how do we bring him down? The problem is, is there's no dirt on Daniel because Daniel lived a very blameless life. He lived in such a way that nobody had anything on him. So the Bible actually says this in 6.4. It says, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. So this is what the, the guy said. The, um, the leader said, they said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless 
We find it in connection with the law of his God. Then we get to one of those moments where once again you can't help but wonder, Cain, what the heck are you thinking? The Cains make some really, really weird decisions in, in, in the Bible, especially during this exile. It's like when Xerxes is like, yeah, in Esther, he's like, yeah, let's take my signet ring and you can kill all the Jews on that one day and nobody can, like, what are you thinking? Why do Cains do this stuff? It doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's so corrupt. But basically what happens is these, Cain, these guys go to the king and they're like, Cain, you're worthy of worship. You're worthy of being prayed to. All these people are praying for all these other things and petitioning and worshiping. Why don't we make a decree that nobody can worship anybody, nobody can pray to anybody, besides you for 30 days. And Darius is like, that's an awesome idea. Where do I sign? So Darius, he wants to be worshipped. Like, what kind of a king would do something like that? Seriously. But he signs into law this awful ordinance and says that for 30 days, nobody can worship any god besides him. They can't ask their gods for anything. They can only ask Darius. And if they do ask any of their gods or, or God... They're going to get thrown into a den of lions. Now, this really is the moment in Daniel's life when he had, to decide, he had to decide, I'm not only going to make the right decision, but I'm also going to demonstrate the right decision. I'm going to demonstrate which side that I'm on. And this is very, very significant. And I'm telling you guys, I really believe we need to hear this today. First look at this, verse 10. This shows what kind of man Daniel was. Daniel knew the decree that went out, and he said when he knew that the document had been signed, he knowingly does this, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees, and three times a day he prayed and gave thanks before his God, just like he had done before. In other words, Daniel will not pray to King Darius. Daniel will not worship King Darius or any other god. He went specifically to this place where it would be known that he was committing an act of civil disobedience. And he prayed to God, the God that he actually believed is worthy of being prayed to. Now this is very, very healthy to do this. And a lot of us are eager to do this. And it's very healthy to do this so long as you actually believe it's worth it. You've got to hear this. This is a really big point and we cannot overlook it. I know like, the sermon has had like four mini sermons in it, kind of crammed into one part. I'm sorry about that. This whole book is, it's, it could be a whole series. But there's going to be times in your life when you're going to have to stand for something that goes against the grain that goes against what is normal. It might even be standing up against authority. There may come times when that, when that authority is asking you to do something that goes against what is in your heart, and in your heart you know this is absolutely not right. You have the word of God to back you up. It's not right. But I said something a minute ago that I hope you heard, and I'm going to say it again because I don't want you to miss it. Because in, in this, what I view as very tense right now, political climate, that we're in right now, mixed with all the social tools that were all kind of available to us, everybody has a soapbox and everybody has a cause. Everybody has a soapbox and everybody has a cause. And there are going to be times in your life when you need to speak up on behalf of whatever that cause is. But hear this again. As long as you actually believe that it's worth it, 
because everything comes at a cost. What makes Daniel so heroic is not that he screamed loudly in order to be heard. It is that he knew he would be killed if he did this. He would be killed if he did not compromise his faith. And to him, that was worth it. To lose everything to praise God. But guys, you cannot have it both ways. We want to have it both ways. And it makes me crazy when I see Christians doing this. You cannot be an outspoken critic of something that culture has accepted and then be angry when you get attacked for it. That's going to happen. Just read the red letters of Jesus and you'll see that's always going to happen. And my encouragement to you in this time, that again, at least from my view, from what I've experienced, I think it's somewhat tense time right now. Hold fast to your faith while holding your tongue when possible. And I know it's not always possible. Sometimes you have to speak up. But choose your battles with wisdom. Only fighting the ones that you truly believe are worth it. Because every single one of them will come at a cost. So make sure that cost is worth it. So watch what happens to Daniel. The other high officials, they go to King Darius and say, okay, you signed it, now you got to do it. Throw him in the, you know, you signed it, Daniel broke the law, throw him in the lion's den. So they throw Daniel in a den of lions. Darius is very grieved because he loved Daniel. He's like, I don't want to do this, but the law has already been signed. Daniel, I believe your God can bring you through this. They throw him in, they seal him in this den of lions. And of course he does make it through. Of course God brings him through because God is faithful. The Lord does deliver Daniel. In fact, the lions don't touch him the entire night. He leaves without a scratch. And then when they bring him back out, they find that no harm is done to him whatsoever. And the king, he is so amazed by this. He says, I truly am not the one to be worshipped, am I? And he had the men who tried to frame Daniel thrown into the lion's den. And it says that before they even hit the ground, the lions had eaten them. They're still in the air, the lions. These are not the kind of lions that don't eat people. They just didn't eat Daniel. And watch what the king says. I know you can come up. This is what the king says in Daniel 6, um, 25 through 28. We'll start in 25. This is so significant. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace, shalom, welfare be multiplied to you. Peace. Be multiplied to you, Daniel. Peace be multiplied to you, Israel. Peace be multiplied to all people. That same welfare that you have sought for our city, the city that you have worked for, even though you're not from here, you're from another place, may that same welfare now be multiplied to you. This is the king saying this to the people. And look at what King Darius proclaims over the land. Verse 26. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. And what? His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be be to the end. It'll never end. You remember this? Daniel 2, 44, Daniel prophesied this very thing to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you know what? The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the people uh, of that kingdom be left to another people. This kingdom is forever. And here we have Darius saying the exact same thing. 
our kingdom will never outlast the kingdom of God. Our kingdom is never going to outlast the kingdom of whoever just rescued Daniel from the lion's den. The same God who was in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. The king declares the glory of the one true God. He goes on. In verse 27, 28, he says, He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So in the end, Daniel stayed true to his God while being an advocate for his city. He served as king. He was even a part of the government. He made changes and even served as an avenue for God's coming judgment. Actually, the name Daniel actually means that God is judge. So Daniel's not judging, but he's saying, you know, I'm come to let you know God will. But he always knew he's a citizen of a different kingdom. Yet look at what this says. It says he prospered in the land that he was in exile in. Daniel was a living, breathing, flesh and blood example of a dude who lived the mandate that God gave them in Jeremiah 29. When God told the exiles in Babylon, you need to not separate from the city, you need to seek the welfare of the city. You know, we love that verse, don't we? Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, right? It tells us that God knows these plans and we know they're good, they're planned to prosper us, right? And it's true and it's beautiful and we need to not neglect it. It should be believed. But in context, we also need to realize that Jeremiah was not telling the people in exile that God is going to take away all of their troubles. In fact, he said, you got 70 years of this before it's going to get redeemed. He said he has a plan to redeem it. He has a plan to use those troubles. He has a plan to make all things new. And he has a plan to work even in the middle of it. And if there's one thing that I believe that we can take away from all the stories and the narrative of the book of Daniel... It's how to live faithfully in a kingdom that's not your own. How to live faithfully in a place that maybe it's not where you're from. And it's something we all need to be constantly getting better at. But we also need to remember that when we do the things that Jesus asks of us, sometimes we're going to get in trouble with other people. How could we not? It happened to Jesus, right? There's this moment in Luke 11. It's fascinating. Uh, Jesus, he had just cast a demon out of a man that was mute, right? So this man, he was, his life was one way, he's totally mute. And then Jesus did a miracle and it totally turned this man's life around. You should be excited. And even that, people get mad about it. They said he, he's, he's casting out demons. Uh, he has Beelzebub's doing it. It's, it's evil. It's an evil spirit that is making Jesus be able to do this. He's working through evil spirits to do mighty works. And this is how Jesus responds. And it's, it's actually fascinating. This is the only time he ever uses this particular phrase in the entire Bible. And I don't know for sure if they're related, but it bears a very strange similarity to Daniel 5. Again, he gives this man something the man had never had before, right? The man's a captive to muteness, and now he's free. And Jesus is being criticized for that. And look at what he says in Luke eleven twenty. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what actually said before that is, if I'm doing this through Beelzebub, then you've got a whole lot to figure out. But if I'm doing this by the finger of God, 
then what that means is that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God in the, the, the finger of God in Luke is declaring that the kingdom has come. It has arrived. That which we have always anticipated is now right here in our midst. And when we read things like Daniel 5, right, and this weirdo hand coming out of nowhere, writing something with its finger on a wall, we just think judgment, right? Isn't that what we think? We think judgment's about to fall. But really, we should be thinking justice. Because that night was a turning point, not only for Babylon, but also for Israel. See, when the Medes and the Persians took over, yes, Israel was still in exile. They would be for probably about another 20 years. And there were still some weird moments like when Darius threw Daniel in the lion's den, that stuff happened to a degree. But Persia did not rule the way that the Babylonians did. They didn't keep them in one place. They let them go back home if they wanted. They let them scatter if they wanted. They let them disperse if they wanted. They went to different places. They even let them serve and worship their God to an extent. It's a very big shift. It was actually a swift turn in the right direction for the people of God to get back to what was intended for them. The finger on the wall brought in a whole new kingdom for the people of Israel, just like the finger of God created a whole new world for that mute man and was a part of ushering in the kingdom of God. It was proof the kingdom of heaven is right here and right now amongst us. And sometimes we view the things that we're going through as punishment. We're like, man, God, you must be punishing me. Or we view it as, God, you're just being silent right now. Like, where are you? You're not showing up. Sometimes we might feel like wanderers. Where are we going? Or exiles or outcasts. We think the sky is falling if the world takes what maybe we view as a lawless step backwards. Or if, our, if the election doesn't go the way that we want it to go or whatever it might be. But sometimes I think God just wants to get your attention. And sometimes he just wants to get my attention and remind us he's bigger than any of that. He's bigger than any of that. The world is broken. That is the heart of the gospel. The world is a broken place and the world cannot fix itself just like you cannot fix yourself, just like I cannot fix myself. But Jesus died on a cross to make the broken things in our world come back together and be whole. To make the broken things whole in our lives. Jesus died for us and has changed the entire world through it. And he's given us this mission, this mission of reconciling the world back to him. And he has a plan for your life. And it's for your own welfare. It's for good. And if you could just dedicate yourself to the welfare of other people, to the welfare of our community, to the welfare of the people that God puts, puts in your life, man, I'm telling you, that's going to come full circle for you. It always comes full circle for the people of God. Because if there's one thing I know for sure, it's that God will always do what God says he's going to do. Every single time. He did it for Daniel. He did it for Israel. I believe he can do it for me. And I believe he can do it for you. I believe he can do it for our church. I believe that the things that he's put in our heart for this church, he can make a way to make those things take place right here in our city. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of your neighbors. Let's work to make this place a better place. Let's work to usher in the kingdom of heaven right here and right now because the city needs Jesus. And we have him. We don't have him so we can just stay in this little room. We have him so we can go out there and make a difference and show people what salt and light truly is and be that for them and show people the glory of God. Seek the welfare of the city, church, for in it is our welfare.